The year was 1954, one year before my father was born. The roaring 50s were upon us, and the war was over. The American automobile industry was going through major changes, a major boom time as well. The 50s were all about people expanding into the suburbs, purchasing two vehicles. The world was growing. American culture was growing. And with it, the American automobile industry was seeing its biggest boom time since the introduction of the automobile. With the big three basically running the show in America, all of the smaller makes, should have been a little bit better time for them, seeing as it was a boom time. But unfortunately, with the big three being as big as they were, some of the smaller makes like Studebaker, Packard, Nash Kelvinator, and Hudson Motor Company were all having issues trying to push themselves out. Before the war, they were all doing great, but now things were changing and the big three were getting more fierce in the marketplace. And because of this, in 1954, two of those great companies merged together. They would soon create the fourth largest automaker in the United States. One that would have an expansive history of great products, but unfortunately would give way to the big three eventually as it lost out market share and lost out its production. Today, we're taking a look at the life and times of American Motors. Autolux Podcast coming to you anytime, anywhere from around the globe on any major streaming site from Autolux.net. Welcome back to the Autolux Podcast. I am your host, as always, the doctor to the automotive industry, Mr. Everett J. Coming to you from our main website at autolux.net. If you haven't been there, stop by, check it out. We are famous for our end-of-the-year ratings from around the globe. We rate over 500 vehicles from around the world every single year. On top of that, we have the most inclusive corporate links website you can find on the internet with automakers from every major car producing nation in the world and some you have never even heard of. And if you're one of those teachers or educators out there, stop by our help pages or even Corporate Links websites to find information that you may need for your classroom. All from Autolux.net and the Autolux podcast. So as I said in the beginning of this intro, we are talking about American Motors today. Yes, American Motors, AMC. Now we all get it, AMC, the name is somewhat back with Alpha Motors Corporation today, but they are not the same thing as American Motors was. They were formed in January of 1954 when Nash Calvinator Corporation began the acquisition of Hudson Motor Car Company. Now, if you don't know about Hudson Motor Car Company, you apparently haven't watched the movie Cars with Doc Hudson, the fabulous Hudson Hornet. Hudson was one of those automakers that was just bigger players during the 20s, 30s, and into the beginning of the 40s, similar to that of Packard and Studebaker. Nash Calvinator was one of those up and rising stars. They started hitting production volumes, but unfortunately by the 50s, with the American Big Three and all of their many, many divisions taking over the American marketplace, all of these small makes started to lose market share and started falling behind and because of that Nash Calvinator and Hudson Motor Car Corporation merged together the end result would become the American Motors Corporation this was a name that was previously used by Louis Chevrolet's Besser American Motors Corp this was the auto company he made after he was basically kicked out of his homegrown car company Chevrolet when William C. Durant took it over and formed it into General Motors 
The deal was a straight stock deal for both of them. And formally, these two merged together and became AMC on May 1st, 1954, making them the fourth largest automaker in the United States. The merger was brought on by NASA CEO George W. Watson, and Watson believed that the remaining small automakers would be better to join forces to fight the Big Three. You have to remember, the Big Three had multiple divisions at this time. Ford, Lincoln, Mercury, and in Canada, Monterey. And they even attempted to bring the Etzel brand. Dodge, DeSoto, Plymouth, Chrysler, Imperial. Then you get General Motors with GM, Chevrolet, Cadillac, Buick, Pontiac, Oldsmobile. They were all there and they were covering every portion of the marketplace. And small little automakers like Nash and Hudson that only went after one main part of the automotive industry at that point in time were having issues. This was shown during the 1953-1954 price wars between Ford and GM when they started undercutting each other to try and gain market share. Ford wanted to get back to the heydays of when Henry Ford created the automobile industry in its entirety for the average person back in the 1920s. This unfortunately left a lot of the smaller automakers out to pasture. This had not been seen since the dirty 30s when the economy fell through and a lot of the smaller automakers could not make it through. They began to merge back then and up until today not a lot of them had grown and become as big as they possibly needed to be to withstand the market dominance of the big three. With companies like Studebaker looking to Packard with help, this war eventually brought down even the once and mighty companies of Hudson, Packard, and Studebaker. You have to remember, Packard was one of the biggest automakers during the Roaring Twenties, with even Theodore Roosevelt wanting it as his personal presidential vehicle. Packard was the biggest name. But unfortunately, they shot themselves in the foot to go after more of a mainstream marketplace with their own products instead of creating a division to do this. This is something we leave to a later podcast about Packard Studebaker. The merger led to a cost cutting at Hudson as doubling up with Nash led to a better purchasing power. For 1955, AMC struck a deal with Packard for their ultramatic automatic transmissions and V8 engines. As we all know, the 1950s were big with V8 engines. This was brought upon by the 1930s and into the 40s when people thought V8s. Without having to wind up your vehicles anymore, V8s became a big place in the American auto industry. AMC had wanted to merge with Packard as well, but their CEO would not merge unless he himself could become the CEO of AMC. This was not going to happen. So unfortunately later, Packard would soon merge with Studebaker. The partnership would see the SP purchase of AMC parts. This would never materialize, unfortunately. Thus, AMC began work on their own V8 motors. Without the Studebaker-Packard purchase, they needed to make their own V8s. And in mid-1956, AMC finally phased out the Packard V8 and replaced it both in an engine and transmission with their own V8 and a GM Hydromatic and Borgen-Wargner transmissions. 1958 rolled in and became AMC's first year of profitability. Gotta remember, they merged in 54. Took them four years to get to profitability. With the rise of the Rambler sales, the NAS and Hudson names were dropped at this time, where AMC was taking over as the main product line. By this time, AMC's focus was only on smaller vehicles. Seeing that the big three were after the top tier marketplaces and only displaying full-size products with big block V8s, AMC decided to go one step further and say, what about that entry-level customer that can't afford to drive those? 
This was seen to be way ahead of its time, where products like this were not required and the big three did not enter the small car marketplace big time until the gas crisis of the 1970s. They did not want to fight for large car supremacy with the big three, knowing that they had owned pretty much the entire market. Their CEO predicted that the small car market would rise during the 60s, when more urban people were looking for vehicles. By 1963, he predicted that over 3 million small cars would be on American roads. And in 1959, April 1st, 1959, AMC began work on the Sonatone Corporation on a new electric car concept. This concept was to be powered by a nickel-cadmium battery from Sonatube, which could be rapidly recharged and was self-charging. You gotta remember, this is 1959 and they're thinking about electric cars, where the big players were looking at things like the turbine engines and nuclear. Although it never made it to production, this concept was ahead of its time by well over 20 years, where electric cars were not seen again until the major gas crisis of the 70s. In the 60s, AMC became an innovator, bringing new technology to production cars before the big three. Standard tandem master cylinder in 1962 stopped the car even during a brake failure. Flashomatic transmissions, which allowed you to start in second gear. So the park reverse, neutral, drive two, drive one, or first gear. 1964, they offered the reclining front seats, which took the big three a decade to bring to production. 1964, reclining front seats. So that people like myself don't have to sit perfectly straight up in their seat and we can lounge back. Not thinking of it right now, you're probably thinking of that comedian on The Simpsons that's talking about the way people drive. I know you're thinking about it right now, and he's got a point. Bendix disc brakes were standard on the 1965 AMC Marlin, making it the first modern American car with standard disc brakes. In 1964, Studebaker closed up shop, 66 in Canada, with only Kaiser Jeep, International Harvester, Avanti, and Checkered Motors remaining as the only other independents in the American marketplace. This was also after a time when Studebaker and Packard had merged together. 1964, 66 in Canada, they stayed along a little bit longer in Canada with their production facilities in Hamilton, Ontario. Studebaker, who is now gone, not gone forever because if you have actually taken a look on Google Maps, look for this Studebaker test facility. Just write in Studebaker test facility. And when you go ahead on Google Maps, you can actually see Studebaker written in the trees at their test facility. And as we all know, one of the largest American automobile production facilities in history is still falling apart in Detroit at the old Packard plant. Take a look for that. You'll be surprised. It's very interesting. And you can find many videos about urban explorers going through it. Once great production facility brought to shambles. And all from the fall of Packard Studebaker. In 1965, saw the introduction of the Ambassador Marlin, which was a luxury muscle car made to compete with the Dodge Charger. And if you've actually seen the Ambassador Marlin, it has similar lines, too, to the original Dodge Chargers. By 1966, rumors started about the demise of AMC due to the aging Rambler line. This was odd, as this was the year that their international sales were starting to boom. If you've not watched James Bond, The Man with the Golden Gun, then you don't understand this. AMC was the first American brand to set up shop on the other side of the world. In Asian marketplaces, AMC was there first. By watching The Man with the Golden Gun, they're trying to promote their AMC products in that marketplace. 
Canada, Europe, and Latin America were all booming for the AMC brand. By 1968, management had changed, and so with it came Ron D. Chaplin Jr., son of the Hudson Motor Car Company's founder. He slashed the price of the Rambler to within $200 of the Volkswagen Beetle and made air conditioning standard on all Ambassador models. Sound familiar? This is what Hyundai did in the late 90s when they started making power windows standard even on their basic models. In 1970 saw the introduction of the AMC logo finally and a name for all of its products. No more were the Rambler, Nash, or Hudson names. Now it was only AMC. In February of 1970, Chapin agreed to purchase the ailing Jeep division from Kaiser Jeep Corporation. This was seen as to complement automotive line and gave them the advantage in the SUV market, with Jeep only other major competition being that of the Ford Bronco. If you want to learn more about the Bronco, we do have a podcast about it. This purchase also came with military contracts, which were carried over to the American Motors General Products Division, later becoming AM General. You know, the company that made the Humvee and made the Hummer brand, later created by the General Motors Corporation. 1970 saw the introduction of the Hornet, a small car brand, and later the Gremlin. The Gremlin became North America's first subcompact car. And being that it's 1970, the gas crisis has not hit us yet. AMC is still one step ahead of the big three. Both the Hornet and the Gremlin could be ordered in Levi's denim interior and Levi's special editions. And one of my dad's friends actually has a Levi's AMC Gremlin. Now, the Gremlins weren't the greatest looking cars out there, but you have to remember, they slapped a V8 in that little bad boy, a subcompact with a V8. Talk about crazy. Essentially beating the GTI Golf to the hot hatch market. The Hornet range became AMC's best-selling product line since the Rambler. And in 1971, the Matador was replaced with the Rebel lineup. Ever wonder why Dodge utilizes the Rebel name for their trucks? Remember, they bought out the remaining products from AMC later on. 1973 saw a newly stretched ambassador just as the Arab oil embargo began. 1974, the ambassador full-size sedan was dropped due to the oil embargo. AMC made ambassadors from 1927 to 1974, being AMC's longest living nameplate, but all due to an oil crisis, it was gone. In 1974, we saw the introduction of the AM General's Urban Transit Buses, built in cooperation with Flyer Industries of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Yes, Canada builds and has some of the largest companies out there which build buses, if you did not know that. Go and check it out on the Corporate Links website on autolux.net. March of 1975 saw the introduction of the AMC Pacer, the alternative to the Gremlin. This was built due to the new safety regulations and the oil embargo. However, the Pacer and the Matador Coupe shared few parts with other products from the AMC and soon became expensive to build and drain capital away from other projects. Gotta remember, if you've listened to our podcast about platform building, AMC really should have done more platform building across their lineup. And with the Pacer and Matador not sharing anything with anything else, they were essentially dissolving their company from the inside. This could have used an update, but the cash flowing to the Hornet and Gremlin models, the Matador Coupe and the Hornet Coupe, did play a role in the James Bond movie, The Man with the Golden Gun. Remember as I talked about that. And although that Matador Coupe learned to fly, unlike its sales on the ground. 
Yes, as the man with the golden gun is being chased, James Bond is driving an AMC Hornet, chasing him in his Matador Coupe. His Matador Coupe escapes to a barn, whereas his henchman applies wings to it, and it learns to fly. But unfortunately, the Matador Coupe never took off. Its sales were more grounded than the car from James Bond. Even with limited updates, previous models did hang on to their likability on the used car market due to their good warranty coverage. This made used AMCs great buy on the used car market, but that doesn't help your bottom line when people aren't buying more of them brand new. In 1978, March 31st, 1978, AMC signed a deal with Renault for a joint manufacture and distribution of vehicles to benefit both parties. This was AMC's first gambit into self-destruction. Renault gained 22.5% stake in AMC and made a cash injection of $150 million to help AMC out. By this time, AMC had dropped to 1.83% market share in the American market. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but would make a turn for the worst soon enough. In May of 1978, AMC received a recall notice from the EPA for the 1976 cars due to emission regulations. Recall, this is going to get expensive. The cost the company $3 million in 1978, more than AMC had earned in the previous quarter. 1978 was not a good year for AMC passenger cars, and they lost an estimated $65 million. All of this would have brought down AMC, if not for the strong sales of their Jeep division. AMC would have ended the year on a loss. But trouble was brewing for Jeep, as new federal compliance for a mileage of 15 miles per gallon on four-wheel drive vehicles was hanging over their head. 1979 saw the brand new Spirit model appear to replace the Gremlin. This came along with the new Eagle brand of products. Eagle products were four-wheel drive versions of the Spirit and Concorde, and essentially were one of the first American-made trekking-style vehicles. They were out before Subaru even became big in North America. Four-wheel drive cars. They had sedans, they had coupes, they had station wagons that were four-wheel drive. They were trekking models, something that people today love. But in 1979, we were still all about sedans. Although the Spirit and Concorde died out in 1983, the Eagle brand survived as a wagon until 1988. The Eagle brand would become AMC's last representation. As of December 14th, 1987, the last Eagle rolled off the production line, ending the life of AMC completely. In 1980, AMC closed up production of the AMC Pacer and managed to build a few 1980 model year Pacers to clear up their stock. This year, AMC started their Zybart factory rust protection on their products and added on a five-year no-rust warranty to try and drum up sales. During the 80s, AMC had trouble with new imports increasing in the numbers and with their Kenosha, Wisconsin plant. This plant was aging, and at the time, it was the oldest operating automobile plant in the world. On December 16, 1980, the stockholders approved the takeover by Renault, with the company going to the French government-controlled company. This would lead to a new age of front-wheel drive vehicles from AMC, but would truly lead to the end of the true American car. The reviews of the AMC Renault Alliance were great, but quality and dealership issues hindered the car's success. 
My parents actually owned one of these old AMC alliances, and they had so many problems with them. And my dad tells me the story of when he brought it to the dealership, and they literally told him, yeah, we know there's a problem. We can't fix it. That essentially signified to my parents, AMC was just garbage. And being built from Renault, a company that barely even knew anything about building automobiles for the American marketplace, just proved that garbage was coming. Renault did do good as they released the all-new Cherokee and Wagoneer models built off of a brand new platform for the Jeep product range. The Cherokee was hailed as the new birth of the SUV kingdom. Sales boomed as well as over 75,000 units sold in its first year. This was a win for Renault and AMC. But by 1985, AMC was at the bottom end of the American auto industry. Focused on small cars from Europe, their lineup lacked larger products. We're now in demand. Cheap fuel, again, spurred interest in bigger vehicles, and with products like the Chevrolet Caprice edging out the Impala nameplate, Crown Vix, AMC did not have the right products. AM General was sold off as Renault plundered their losses. This was part due to their contracts with the American military, and with Renault being owned by the French government, the Americans really weren't too keen on another country owning the company that builds their military products. During this time, issues began to arise at the Kenosha plant. This led to Renault to building their prized possession, the most up-to-date manufacturing plant in the entire AMC and Renault product lines, the Bramley plant in Ontario. This was the newest and most sophisticated auto plant in North America. It was also built on lands previously owned by Avro Aeronautics Corporation. Yes, the same company that built the Avro Aero. If you haven't heard about it, go check out the amazing supersonic military jet created by the Canadian government and its blunder. But was this plant enough to save AMC? By 1986, the new medallion and larger premier models had arrived, but a lack of Alpine sports coupes, AMC only had sedans. By this time, Renault was already mulling over the idea of bankruptcy, investment, or sell-off of the AMC division. The sell-off would be the best option to keep Renault alive back home. During 1985, Chrysler's M-body chassis, and with nowhere else to increase production, they decided to partner with AMC and their Kenosha plant. This led to a rumor that Chrysler may be looking to purchase AMC's assets. This and a $91.3 million loss of Renault's 46.1% stake in AMC led to those rumors. On March 9th, 1987, Chrysler agreed to buy Renault's stake in AMC. Plus, they bought out the remaining shares as well. They were interested in Jeep, the Bramley plant, and their dealer network of over 1,300 dealerships nationwide. Chrysler was not looking to save AMC. They just wanted parts of it. And with the sale, further AMC products would switch over to the newly formed Jeep Eagle division at Chrysler. This all happened when AMC was on an upswing, as the newer Renault products were wanted and they were posting profits to the company. With the losses was too much for Renault, as they wanted to reinvest back home where they were losing market share, and it dropped from number one due to number six due to their losses. Losing market share to companies like Ford and Volkswagen. By August 25th, 1988, AMC had changed over to the Jeep Eagle brand, which would later become fully merged into the Chrysler in March 29, 1990. Chrysler was only after three things from AMC, all of which could have saved the brand, the Jeep brand, and the in-development Jeep ZG Grand Cherokee model. AMC's Bramley plant for the added production were all products that could have saved AMC. 
Their dealer network, management talent, eagle platform, and past nameplates were also a bonus to Chrysler as well. By the end of 1987, all that what remained of the AMC had been merged into Chrysler. For a company that had to fight and out-innovate the big dogs, the curtain finally came down. AMC did have some great products over the years with its Nash and Hudson background and a few product labels which are still remembered today and are still alive today, being the Cherokee and the Rebel. And hell, even the Grand Cherokee. Because you have to remember the Grand Cherokee product was in development before Chrysler bought out AMC. AMC may not have won the day, but they did win over many people with their innovation and small size. Near the end, AMC was just a hollowed out shell of what it once was. It was essentially American Renault. Renault had made its own with the Eagle product. AMC was sunk. Had the Grand Cherokee and the Bramley plant opened earlier, AMC could have made it into the 90s. But unfortunately, we'll never know. The Premier would become an Eagle in the Dodge Monaco. And its LH platform would become the basis for the next generation 300 series product. And the Chrysler Concorde. This could become the Eagle Vision, but Eagle was dropped earlier on. So in the end, American Motors was on the verge of making a comeback, right as Renault pulled the plug. Had Renault not lost enough market share back home, maybe American Motors would still be here. And with Chrysler owning all of the old American Motors brand names, and now Stellantis holding on to them, could we see a rebirth of maybe some of these old car companies? Probably not. As Stellantis is having trouble trying to keep Chrysler and Dodge going, it's hard to see why they would ever consider bringing back Nash or Hudson. Or hell, even bringing back AMC, just so we can have the Rambler nameplate. Or even the AMX. American Motors had some amazing cars throughout its time, but unfortunately, they were always sitting in the back of the room. People knew they were there, but people didn't want to acknowledge them. It's almost the exact same thing that has happened to Chrysler in past years. Chrysler saved American Motors and their plant and their products. It kept them alive as the Eagle brand for a short amount of time. Jeep is essentially the only product from American Motors that still exists today. None of its platforms exist or engines. All the tooling is gone. And with only the Bramley plant in Ontario being its only part that still exists in today's world. American Motors is gone. But it is not forgotten as all of us remember the products and remember the great times we had with old AMC. And as we sit back and watch the Cars movie and see Doc Hudson showing Lightning McQueen how to properly drive as the fabulous Hudson Hornet, we remember times of great products. We miss those times in some of those great car companies. Packard, Studebaker, Nash, International Harvester, Checker Cabs. They were all great products and they all had a niche. But unfortunately, the American marketplace is about merging together and being as big as possible. Unlike its counterparts over in Japan or Europe, the bigger, the better for the American industry. And unfortunately, with that mentality, some of those great car companies are gone forever. If you want to take some more information, there's some great books out there that can give you some help. I read a book recently about the 1930s, basically showcasing how the American automobile industry changed from the 20s to the 40s, and some of the car companies we lost during those days. You start to take notice at how big Packard and Hudson once were, and the fact that the Americans had their own competitor to Rolls-Royce at one point with Pierce Arrow. Can the American auto industry come back to where it once was? Well, with the second coming of the American automobile industry and the rise of EVs, we don't think we'll see brands like Hudson, Studebaker, Packard, or AMC come back to life, but we may see some of their names come back to life for utilization in today's world. 
with companies like BMW owning Triumph and now Volkswagen bringing back the old International Scout, some of these old products may just seem like a good idea for an evolving automotive world of today. And even though there is a new company that we can call AMC, AMC is no longer here. So if you like this podcast, please like, share, or comment. Help follow us on any of the major social feeds or streaming sites that you have found the Autolux podcast on. We release a new episode every single week. And check out the Autolux.net website as we do release on a weekly basis an automotive design review. Yes, we write blogs and articles about how the automobile industry looks and specific cars. So take a check, mull it over, and stop by Autolux.net and the Autolux podcast. The Autolux podcast is brought to you by Ecom Entertainment Media, vision of Everett Corp. I am your host, Everett J, coming to you from podbeam.com, and you can find us on any major streaming site around the globe, from Spotify to iTunes, and even our RSV feed on feedspot.com. So for myself, Everett J, the whole Autolux team here, strap yourself in for this one fun wild ride that AMC will once take you on. Thank you.